0: That's why we were sort of like, you know, for people like up to about 70, you might not want to... Okay. Um, we're going to close the door and begin. Yeah. <laughs> Are we that? All right. So um, I think we're in for a treat. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Eric Dar uh, back with us uh, today to lead us through a number of case presentations and yes. panel discussion on antiviral therapies. Um I think you'll uh, enjoy this. We have uh, an hour and maybe 15 minutes, including questions and answers. Uh, So please feel free to ask uh, your questions as we go along, uh, or you can save them up for the end. Uh, Eric, it's all yours. Great, thank you. Um, Thanks, Ron. Thanks for including me in the session this year. Uh, So, what we're going to do is uh, talk a little bit about strategies. We have a wonderful panel of Uh, experienced HIV providers uh, who deal with a wide range of aspects of HIV disease, and I use this, as usual, I like to use this as an opportunity to introduce a little bit of new data and take advantage of having the panel and all of you here to give us input in some of the situations that we encounter frequently in clinical practice, but where there isn't always a clear answer. So we'll go ahead and start. Um, I have to remember to do two things at once. And that's not easy. Uh, let's see. So these are our objectives. Uh, and we're going to start with case one. A 52-year-old man with stable diabetes who's been HIV negative presents to you for advice regarding how to best avoid HIV infection in his new relationship with his HIV-infected partner. He states that his partner's been on antiretrovirals for nearly two years with good suppression. He's been diagnosed with several STIs in the last year. They mostly use condoms, but they have heard that they may not be necessary if the partner is suppressed. Uh, He would rather not use condoms, but wants to know what the risks would be without them. So the first question for all of you is, which of the below would be closest to what you would tell him with regards to his risks of acquiring HIV from his current partner if they choose to not use condoms? Uh, Number one, you would be at some risk and should ideally use condoms. The risk would be very low, but you can't tell, but can't tell you that it's completely safe. Your risk of acquiring HIV infection from your partner is essentially zero. So let's go ahead and have you vote. Nice coming in now when everybody's used to the, the system. Good. Okay, well it's actually a very nice mix, a good distribution. Almost half said the risk would be very low, but can't tell you that's completely safe, and about a quarter to a third in the other categories. Um, I was going to ask the panel by show of hands if they agreed with the majority, but I'm not sure we have a clear majority.
1: So maybe, Rafi, what would you advise somebody like this? Um, So this this is sort of a little bit of a quagmire, isn't it? Um, Because the data strongly suggests that if uh, an HIV-infected partner is on treatment and undetectable, and that's sort of the key component there, um, that the risk of transmitting in an MSM... Stereo-discordant relationship is essentially zero, and the data is pretty robust. It's observational data; that's not randomized data. It's the partner study and the opposites attract study, um, but we believe it that there's an enormous number of person years of follow-up, and there have been zero transmissions. Of course, there's a 95% confidence interval around that, but it really is ver- negligible. The question, of course, for this individual is: you know, could there be partners outside of that dyad that? You know that they would want to be careful about and and when is the last time that the person was known to be undetectable and is there a possibility that they're being non-adherent to their ARVs if those are non issues then it really is a negligible risk from my standpoint
0: how much time um, do you spend fixating on, I mean the discussion with them about other outside partners is easy and obviously you just have to take them at their word. Um, But the the issue of you know a lot of attention has been given looking at cohorts of patients that are undetectable and what proportion are intermittently detectable with 15, 20, 25% being described. And uh, there was a wonderful presentation at CROI where they talked about how empowering this is, how robust the data is, and it's all true. And I think we all believe it and we'll talk about there's consensus statements out there supporting what you just said, but then there's that reality Uh, which may be a little different than what you see in the cohort and observational studies. I don't know, how much time do you spend thinking about
1: that or talking to patients about it? I'll be interested to hear what, what others think about this, but I, I think it's it depends how well you know the person, right? I mean, if this is someone you've been in, in a relationship with for a long time and you know them and you trust them and, you know, you know them to be adherent to their medications, I think you can believe that. Um, if it's a casual partner, um, I, I think, unfortunately, it's a mean, nasty world out there and people aren't always forthcoming and truthful with what they're doing and perhaps more skepticism is appropriate. Judy? I,
2: I think it is um, important, though, to you know, to let people know that it is really true if you are undetectable that you won't transmit because that's a really powerful message. And we often kind of, you know, we have all these but, if, and, and and people interpret that that we don't really believe that that's true. So I think the first thing is you have to say that you believe or that I would say is I believe that that is true. yeah, there are other issues. This person has had STIs, and so there are other issues, and there are issues about other partners. But, but to really say fundamentally, we believe that if the person is undetectable, they won't transmit HIV.
0: Okay, great. Let's go ahead and move on. And um, this... So HPTN-052, everybody is aware of this, the randomized control trial that used um, treatment as prevention as an adjunct to safe sex practices, because they were all encouraged to do that. Um, The partner study, which was the cohort where they exclusively had condomless sex, but it was a cohort of people selected for because their viral loads were less than 200. And as Rafi said, the numbers are zero. And the opposites attract, zero discordant cohort, where they describe zero transmissions in a cohort with over 12,000 condomless sex acts. And I I think it's based on this data. Um, Well, let me try to catch up based on this data that this sort of slogan has come out that I think is really empowering, and I do think there's no reason to shy away from it. I think I tend to agree with Judy that there's no reason we can't tell people that this is almost as close to truth as we're gonna get, but there are caveats, and these are sort of individual issues they need to deal with. And then there's this consensus statement um, that says people living with HIV on antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable viral load in their blood have a negligible risk defined as so small or unimportant as to be not worth considering, insignificant of sexual transmission of HIV. So it's a pretty powerful statement and it's not just from any one of us. It's coming from a much broader group and I don't think there's any reason to not share that. So let's now skip to a a new scenario that comes up occasionally and the partner is not reliably on antiretrovirals. Your patient is very interested in PrEP uh, he's asymptomatic, fourth-generation antibody negative, hep B surface antibody positive, um, but he has diabetes and hypertension and a creatinine clearance of about 50 mL per minute. So these are the most recent um, guidelines, CDC guidelines, from 2017. Uh, clearly, oops, sorry, This having to do two things at once is going to kill me. Um,
3: immediate
0: So is this not matched with that? Oh, I'm assuming that this is synced with that. Is that a faulty assumption? You no,
2: know, yes. you're right. That yours is synced with that. Ours isn't, but that's
0: okay. Well, this is the one, this is the one that I'm, oh. this is the one connected with that. Yeah. All right,
1: well, we can twist around and look. Yeah,
2: yeah we're,
0: we're fine. fine. Oh, I
1: hate to... So this isn't doing it. I can read it backwards in the mirror. There we go. <laughs> i out.
0: It is in the mirror. It's just a little blurry. Yeah. And backwards. <laughs> At least it looks blurry to me, yeah, than backwards. Which one's so. clearer, A or B? <laughs> <laughs> so so these are the, um, so now, so are you going to advance it for me, or? No, I can just keep going, keep going. with this, okay. So, you know, so here are the guidelines. Clearly, this is an individual now who meets criteria. And I think, you know, it's important to note that, um, when the person's viral load is undetectable, if the risk is really zero, it's hard to make the case for PrEP in that setting. And the guidelines do speak to that in a footnote that you would take into consideration whether they fit the high-risk population, but also the partner's antiretroviral status and viral suppression. Yes? Is the
4: viral load defined as the the undetectable load defined as less than 200?
0: Comments, thoughts? Good question.
3: I mean, I think you would, ideally it would be less than 50, but if you have the low level viremia that's not sustained of 50 to 100 or 150, I I think I would still consider that
0: suppressed. And I think partner study inclusion was less than 200. I don't know what proportion were 50 to 200.
3: I I think one thing that we didn't discuss is whether if you knew that someone's in a discordant relationship, would you perhaps monitor a bit more frequently Mm -hmm. instead of just twice a year, would you consider every four months? Something to think about.
0: Okay, so, um, but the guidelines also say that people who have a creatinine clearance of less than 60 shouldn't be offered PrEP for the most part. So, the challenge for all of us and the question that comes up is what to do in a patient like this. So, the options I have for you are to just go ahead and give Tanofer FTC once daily, creatinine clearance is sort of borderline, try TAF FTC use on-demand tdf to reduce the exposure. Uh, tdf perhaps less frequently, like four times per week, uh, strongly encourage him not to take PrEP since renal function is impaired or something else. So with that, let's go ahead and have you vote. Great. Well, for a question for which I'm not sure there's a great answer, this is a terrific response from the audience. So, uh, how many agree with the majority? No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Tim, what would you do?
3: Um, I, I actually picked at least picked one. I uh, tap FTC. I would think about. I am impressed with the animal model data, and uh, I think if this person really needed prep, I think I would. Uh, You know, have the discussion about the lack of data and consider using that so that not to really worsen the renal dysfunction. I mean, I suppose you could also do the on-demand, but for the on-demand, it really depends on how frequent the sexual activity is. And uh, you did use two TDF FTC very quickly, so you do get a high amount. Uh, So if they're having sex, unprotected sex regularly, or excuse me, condomless sex regularly, uh, then you can end up getting lots of doses of TDF-FTC, which might be a problem
0: for this person. It's a really good point, although that's where there's the most data, yeah. was people having frequent sex, although there is some data in the group with less frequent sex in that setting. Other thoughts, Any? how do others vote since there's no clear consensus, Doug?
4: Um, so okay. I actually went with TDF-FTC once daily. Just because you can monitor, monitor create and clearance, given the risk, given the data, I would talk to the person about the risks and benefits and monitor that
1: person. I actually agree, that's what I would do, is, is I would just- Suck it up. Suck it up and, and monitor more carefully, because um, you know, if it starts to deteriorate, um, then we can stop it and we haven't found irreversible Renal dysfunction to date um, with this intervention. I I just worry that TAF isn't going to work. I mean, it might work, it might not work. Um, it's a gamble. Um, and it, you know, I think it's important to remember with this on-demand strategy, the requirements for entering the IPERGATE trial were also um, having creatinine clearance greater than sixty, and there weren't difference. I mean, it wasn't a direct comparison, but the event rates weren't different than in the daily um, uh, trial. So I, I don't know that that's going to be a, a solution. And you know, this four days a week um, thing, you know, it's it's gaining sort of popularity in the lay press, right? It's called T's and S's, right? Mm-hmm. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, you take it and you try and, you know, get the four doses in that we think is associated with the highest levels of protection and maybe minimize toxicity. And, you know, there's no data for that. So, you know, in theory, it sounds attractive. You can get all the benefit and minimize the toxicity. But, um, you know, when we tell people to take PrEP every day, we're happy when they get it in four days a week, what's going to happen if we tell them to take it four days a week? Are they going to get it in less and then the efficacy is going to fall off? So I I think we need data on that before we can sort of cogently recommend that.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I guess it's really about risk and benefit, right? And so there's a risk of taking tenofovir when your creatinine clearance is less than sixty. And there's a benefit if it prevents you from HIV. So that's where I would have to say, how high is your risk of HIV here? What else can you do to mitigate it? And you really want to take a pill every day that might make you get renal dysfunction and kind of work with the, with the person directly on that so that they understand that, that there is, you know, that this is outside of what's currently recommended. But it, there might be some circumstances where that extra risk with monitoring is acceptable.
0: Yeah, and I think the best way we can make that assessment is to just consider how much data we have for these various alternative strategies, none of which have been tested in this patient population. I mean, maybe their diabetes
2: and hypertension can be better treated and their renal function would improve.
0: So this is the model data suggesting in MSM that four days a week may be enough, but it is model data. Uh, And this is the Ipergay study looking at the tube within 24 hours before and then 24 hours and 48 hours later. And as Tim mentioned, if you have sex frequently enough, you start over every 24 and 48 hours. And in this study, the, it worked, but the median number of pills people were taking was about 15 per month. Um, so based on this, it was difficult to know how effective it would be in a population that weren't taking it on average every other day. Um, so they did do a post hoc analysis. It was presented last summer in the population of people taking it less frequently that suggests that it was still efficacious. But again, it wasn't powered to look at this particular strategy in this population. So there are limitations no matter what. Nor do we know for sure that less exposure would markedly reduce the risk of progression of renal disease. So just a lot of unknowns. The one certainty, I guess you could argue, is how at risk the person is for acquiring HIV. And we would balance everything else around that. So let's move on to another case. This is a treatment-naive patient, 29-year-old man, presents to clinic after having a routine HIV antibody screening test that was positive, a CD4 was sent that's 570, Um, the patient was immediately referred and understands that there are good treatment available, has insurance to cover costs of care, but would prefer uh, to defer therapy if possible. Uh, He has no past medical history, is asymptomatic, multiple different partners of unknown HIV status during the past year. So the question for all of you, then, is first, what would you recommend for him? You would strongly encourage him to start, recommend he start, support him in his wishes to defer or something else. And again, at this point, all you know is that he's a healthy, asymptomatic, newly diagnosed individual with a CD4 count of uh, about 500. So go ahead and vote. People are voting quickly. They must not have to think about this question very long. Okay, good, so the 80% would strongly encourage him to start therapy. By show of hands on the panel, is anybody would disagree with this as their first choice? Okay, great, so we'll move on. And we know this is mostly related to the START data, which showed that even in people with CD4s of over 500, there were less clinical endpoints, and that about two-thirds of the endpoints that did occur in this trial happened in people with CD4s over 500. So we have great clinical data showing benefit for the patient, Uh, This is an analysis from SMART and START, showing the benefits are AIDS progression, cardiovascular disease, cancer, death, and other factors. So a lot of clinical data, Uh, and then the HPTN052 study. And I think these are the main factors that have gone into this increasing consensus that we should go ahead and treat everybody who presents with HIV regardless of symptoms and regardless of CD4 count. So let's say what would you do next, the patient, You tell the patient you think he should start, and the patient says, sure. So the question here is, would you send routine labs, an HIV genotype, scheduled for follow-up appointment? Would you send routine laboratory studies without a genotype and start antiretrovirals immediately, sort of the rapid start strategy? The rapid start strategy, um, in this case with a genotype, this is without, um, or do something else? So again, the only thing you have is a CD4 count. I'll go ahead and ask you to vote. So eighty percent would send routine laboratories. With the genotype and start antiretrovirals immediately. So let me start by asking the panel: How many of you, by show of hands, um, are, would try to do a rapid start if it was possible, feasible in your clinic? Okay. And how about genotypes? Here they said they would do a genotype. Anybody not do a genotype in the current era?
3: Okay. I think the only controversy is about whether to send an integrated genotype. You know, it it doesn't really make sense to me that we send a genotype that has reverse transcriptase and then protease, but yet, chances are, the person will never, ever take a protease inhibitor, at least at this point. So it would seem money better spent sequencing integrase, but okay, but the the current recommendations are not to do that because the rates of transmitted integrase in uh, resistance is is so low.
0: Right, unless you know something about their partner, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Anyone sending integrase as part of their, Package. I know there's some clinics that just have packages that include integrase. OK. OK, so it seemed interesting 80% um, suggested that they would try to do rapid start if it's at all possible. Uh, and we do have several large randomized control trials, all in resource-limited settings, that suggest uh, benefits associated with rapid start. This is just one of several studies, including uh, recent studies presented at CROI that have all showed benefit. Um, what there hasn't been a lot of data is domestically. We don't have the randomized control trials in the United States yet. We have more um, the observational data. Uh, and I suspect Rafe showed you a slide that looks something like this, or at least had similar data. I'm sorry, I missed his presentation from the San Francisco group that had previously presented data from a pilot as part of their get to zero program. Uh, and this is more extended follow up from 2013 to 2016 uh, showing an increasing number who started antiretroviral therapy, about the same, but the big difference was the rapid definition, and, and other parameters they looked at was time to viral suppression. So if you think that's important, particularly for transmission, um, it probably is important. Uh, it's certainly one of the benefits, but this is not a randomized control trial. And although there is a consensus in the audience, and I think a lot of enthusiasm for it, the guidelines have acknowledged um, that it, it's not something that we have a lot of data. And um, my goal here wasn't to show you this in its entirety, but actually to show you the conclusion. Um, And the conclusion is basically, it should be emphasized, however, that initiation on same-day diagnosis is resource-intensive, require on-call clinicians, nurses, social workers, and laboratory staff to coordinate patient transportation clinical evaluation, counseling, accelerated insurance coverage, required intake laboratory testing, and systems in place to assure to ongoing care. As these resources may not be available in all settings, uh, certainly aren't in my clinic, and the long-term clinical benefits of same-day treatment have yet to be proven in the United States, this approach should remain investigational. So it's interesting that the guidelines panel decided to go to the effort to put in a statement like this. Judy?
2: Yeah, but I mean there's, you know, same day as you diagnose someone in the field, and there's the same day that the person's in your clinic with, you know, when they present to care. And I think when they're sitting in front of you and they have the HIV test, I think what this is talking about is trying to, when you test somebody out in the field, rush them into the clinic, get them signed up for insurance, and start them on. But I think when someone's sitting there, it's not, that's not so controversial about starting them. Yes. And I, I don't although, although the
0: data's still pending.
2: But, but I don't think we're ever going to have a randomized trial right. of this. It's just to be too, I just don't see that happening.
0: Yeah, I think the big, the big difference between this and what had been traditionally routine care is that usually we have all of the data. We have the viral. we send the genotype because presumably we think it's important. We send the viral load and we have all that information. We have a creatinine back and things like that. Yeah. And this is really moving ahead of that since often they present to clinic without that information. They don't even all, usually don't even have a CD4 yet. Tony?
3: Forward. Um, you know, I I've sat down and consented patients, and they said, Aren't I supposed to start right away? Should I really wait for three weeks? And, you know, they're still engaging in the same behaviors that got them infected to start with. And so I think that. I'm still working. I think that, you know, we're just looking at, uh, you know, what's the new paradigm going to be moving forward because, you know, it's a different world today.
0: No, I think you're right. In clinical trials, it's even harder because often the delay is much longer than just waiting until their creatinine and Viral load comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so he decides to start on the same day. All of the labs are pending, although I decided an HLA, no, everything, viral load, HLA-B5701, genotype, were are all sent and are pending. All you have is a CD4 and his um, consent to start. So what would you start him with? Two nukes and a boosted PI, and if it helps, go ahead and assume that the single tablet regimen is available. Uh, will be later this year, presumably. Two nukes plus raltegravir. I threw in diraverine. Judy will be talking a little bit more about this later uh, as a new NNRTI. I assume it's available, and it'll be a fixed dose combination if it's approved with FTC-TDF. Uh, TDF or TAF with the vitegravir TDF or TAF with dolutegravir, or bictegravir FTC-TAF, the most recently approved drug, or something else. So remember the characteristics, high T cells, asymptomatic, Go ahead and vote. Now he's starting. His viral load is pending. His genotype is pending. OK, hey, great. So 40% the, the newest arrival. presumably TAF FTC with dolutegravir, 20% the boosted PI. So the panel, what would be maybe anybody, your big considerations here? And I guess the big question I would ask is, would your considerations in a patient like this where you're starting without all of the data be any different than how you might start in had you had most of the data and assuming there are no surprises, like he doesn't have transmitted resistance? Judy or Tim, go ahead.
3: I, I was just going to say that uh, you know it's nice to have all the details of the clinical case, but they're almost unnecessary for choosing the, the ART because uh, either dolutegravir or bictegravir is fine because they have a high barrier to resistance. So even if they have some transmitted NRTI resistance, it should still be effective. And if you're using the TAF, you know you don't have to be so concerned about the renal function at baseline. So um, I think it's an easy choice that the audience uh, picked. I think the ritonavir boosted protease inhibitors. I just don't know why one would choose that with all the complexities of drug drug interactions, uh, as well as some of the longer term side effects.
0: Others, Judy?
2: Um, yeah, I mean I tended towards the last two I think I worry about which one's going to have the most paperwork associated with it sometimes yes. <laughs> yes. and and if it's approved by their insurance and and what how much of a delay that's going to run into so often with the newer uh, newest regimen, that's that's a challenge. Rafi did talk about the single case that we had at UCLA of somebody who failed dolutegravir during acute infection with really high viral load. So I think if, it, you know, the person's not an acute infection, I'm more comfortable using an integrase inhibitor without having a resistance test. So,
0: so the question is, Tim, you mentioned that you would pick Bictegravir because of the high barrier to resistance, or, even or, if, Dolutegravir. or Dolutegravir, even yeah. those. So I guess the question is, how confident can we be with Bictegravir right now about the barrier to resistance, well, relative to Dolutegravir, and and how that impacts what we do clinically?
3: Well, I guess I would say the decision between the two, I would base more on what Judy said. If there was something insurance-wise that pushed one versus the other, then I wouldn't make a big deal out of it between the two. But uh, it just depends how much uh, long-term data that you would like to have. So big tegravir, everything looks great, but the data is just much more limited than W-tegravir. Um So uh, it's just kind of a, a comfort level and whether or not you're uh, really attached to one tablet regimen.
0: Mm-hmm. So these are what the DHHS guidelines said as of October 2017. This is prior to the availability of bictegravir, and this was um, prior to the amendment that came out last month, suggesting it should be one of the uh, considered one of the options for people. Um, but at this point, it suggested for people in which you don't have data on transmitted resistance, they've always favored the boosted PI, uh, and then more recently, over the last year or so, have added dolutegravir based on the increasing amount of data with its high barrier to resistance. Um, But we don't have that consensus yet with Bictegravir in the guidelines, and and I guess it's debatable as to how much of that information we need uh, in order to start to think about it more and more like we do Dolutegravir. Um, So after discussion, he decides to wait until more data is back. Let's just change the scenario. And he ends up with a low viral load, 80 to 150 copies per mil. High T cells, no symptoms. Would you strongly encourage him to start? Recommend he start? Suggest he defer therapy for now or something else? And he's willing to do whatever you tell him to do. Go ahead and vote. 70% strongly encouraged to start. How many people in the panel would have voted for, or did vote for one? I don't know if you're voting for the first one. And two? Okay, it's a pretty nice split. You know, this is the one area where there's a little bit of people hedge just a little bit, particularly elite controllers, as to whether they need to be treated or not. I think everybody believes there's a consensus, we should treat everybody else. Based on the data available, based upon at least some biologic concerns about increased inflammation and things like that, elite controllers, it's a little bit more difficult. So let me ask the panel would you change your votes if you knew that his viral load was less than 50?
1: No. no. Judy? Probably not. Doug? Probably not. I mean, it's sort of semantics. I mean, I, I think we're sort of split up here between strongly encourage and recommend that he does. And you know, I think what that looks like is a conversation about what's known and not known. Yeah, like so many of these cases, it's
0: a conversation of what's known and what's not known. (laughs) So um, this was data that was presented at ACTG, um, ACTG 5308, which is one of the first studies that I've seen that has actually tried to look at an intervention in the population. And the thing about this study was that they target a population of people with viral loads of less than 500. So these were not elite controllers, they called them controllers. There were about 37 percent, so some number, 15-ish, that were actually elite controllers with viral loads of less than 40. And what they found in this study and reported at Croix was that there was a decline both in the number of people who had uh, single-copy assay detectability, now we don't know how much of that was driven by the population that were between 40 and 500. Uh, and a decline in the inflammatory markers. So, the things that we were worried about with these people, uh, we were able to influence. Uh, The unanswered question, I think, still remains, what about the people less than 40 if the same is true? And then I do think it gets a little bit to the fact that the other major force behind treating everybody early is because treatment is so well tolerated. The downside to treatment is relatively small, uh, even if you can't completely define the actual benefits. But at least we have more data, so when these people do roll in your door and ask you the question, why would I start this early with less than 500 or less than 40, you can start to get at it. And hopefully this group will at least try to give us a hint if there was anything seen in the 37% who had a viral load of less than 40, and I'm sure they will. Sure, it won't be powered to show anything, but at least give us a hint of which direction things go.
3: I also yeah. just want to say that uh, the undetectable equals untransmittable was for people who were receiving ART, that were undetectable receiving ART. So I don't think we really know about the transmission risk for people who have these low, very low or undetectable viral loads in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. So that's another consideration that I would have to um, starting for the strong recommendation to start is to decrease transmission.
0: But the old original Rakai data actually was natural history data and untreated that suggested those with low viral loads were less likely to transmit.
3: Less likely, but we're talking about, you know, kind of the absolute and untransmittable.
2: Just one other point, though, is like how do you translate what the clinical benefit is of those changes in those inflammatory markers? I think that's... You know, it's sort of, okay, we have some evidence that these things get a little better if you put people on treatment, but what does that actually mean? And I think looking at what happened to the CD4-CD8 ratio, and I think they're going to have some information from this study about quality of life and other things that we can share with people to help them make the decision, because a a relatively small decline in activated CD8 cells may be very beneficial for long-term health. We just don't know yet.
0: But I think that's a really important point, and and it, I don't think we would suggest based on this data that now we have the answer and they should all be treated. But at least we can say that we do have something we can measure that looks beneficial. And what the clinical relevance of that is, we don't know.
3: But I, I think the viremia data was really compelling. That it's not just like a little bit of virus that's spilling out. I mean, it's active, ongoing replication that you're stopping with. Uh, the antiretroviral therapy. So that, to me, is very compelling. And just one other thing from that study was, interestingly, there were a few people that stopped the drug and they still were able to maintain their, you know, elite controller status or the suppression so they didn't lose whatever it was that was keeping them, um, you know, because that was one reason why people were concerned about treating them is that they could convert them into, take away the immune response that was really um, keeping them
0: undetectable. So these are the updated guidelines with Bictegravir now included um, as of the amendment last month. Uh, And this is just one of the two randomized control trials comparing Bictegravir to Dalutegravir demonstrating non-inferiority. And as you know, there were no individuals who selected for resistance in either of these regimens. Uh, And now we have um, sort of growing data with these regimens as far as uh, emergence of resistance or lack of resistance from the couple of trials with 48 weeks data that are available. So the same patient, only this patient is more complicated. He has 110 T cells, a viral load of 210,000. He's missed several clinic visits, uh, has problems with alcohol, some mild depression. He's met with a psychologist, is relatively stable, drinking less. Which of the following would you recommend? So basically we've created now a patient who has more advanced disease. uh, So certainly needs to be on treatment but has some uh, concomitant conditions that maybe put him at some risk for core adherence. So you can choose the two nukes in the boosted PI and assume there's a single tablet regimen available if that helps. The two nukes in reltegravir, the tenofovir with L-vitegravir, tenofovir FTC-dolutegravir, or bacavir 3TC-dolutegravir, or bictegravir FTC-TAF, or something else. So again, a list of some of the preferred options plus the boosted PI as another option in this patient who's at high risk for poor adherence. So go ahead and vote. I'm sorry, I have my back to the side. I apologize for that. Okay, so 38% the boosted PI, 33% Bictegravir, uh, about 23% total for Dalutegravir. Tim, which did you vote for?
3: Um, I voted for Bictegravir, but again, Dalutegravir or TAF FTC would be the, the same for me. Um, what I said earlier, as far as the protease inhibitors, I just I think the complexities of taking them, the side effects, it never really makes sense to me. If you have someone who's going to have challenges with adherence that you would give them a regimen that has more pills or more adverse side effects.
0: I I let you give it to them one pill a day if you wanted to. (laughs) Judy, what would you vote for? Yeah,
2: I I think this idea that we've had for a while that the protease inhibitors are more um, resistance proof than integrase inhibitors, that we favor them in more advanced disease and patients with a more complex you know, social situation, it's just not turning out to be true, and I think we can have confidence that the integrase inhibitors have a strong barrier to resistance, so because there's more experience with dolutegravir, that was what I picked with the um, TAF FTC.
4: Doug? So I went with big tegravir, just working with a lot of alcoholics, some are patients, some are faculty members, but um, the, the big tegravir I went with just because of a single tablet. The anything pretty inhibitor-based with a booster. I worry about side effects. Someone drinking is gonna have issues with side effects. The abacavir is an important point because it's also metabolized through alcohol dehydrogenase, and it would be a contraindication in the treat giving it to an alcoholic, just because of competitive
1: metabolism. Rafi? I did the same thing. I did the Bictegravir in this case, but with a fair bit of trepidation. Um, with the increasing observational data about integrase inhibitors and neuropsychiatric side effects. I'm increasingly um, anxious about people with any sort of comorbid psychiatric history and using dolutegravir and raltegravir in particular, but I'm not anticipating bictegravir is likely to be different, although I don't think we know yet. So um, I I think simplicity and the overriding concerns against using a abacavir and the lack of tolerability of the PIs and the booster issue sort of all favor that, but um, I, I do have this increasing disquiet about this sort of, of patient and integrase inhibitors that not sure what to do with.
0: Yeah, and that was the next question I was actually going to ask the panel is how much time they spend worrying about dolutegravir in particular because we have more data and it's gotten so much attention in people who have these kinds of psychiatric problems. Not much, Tim is like. <laughs> The, um, the, the Big, big Tegraver story and the barrier to resistance is um, it's interesting. I just think uh, it's sort of worth weighing the amount of data we have compared to Dallia Tegravir. Um, so these are the four large fully powered randomized control trials with Dalia Tegravir, some of which you have in excess of three years of follow-up, for which there's no resistance that's ever been selected to the nukes or Dalia Tegravir. Uh, We now have had data with dolutegravir and 3TC in 100-ish patients, 200-150 people, um, with one case of resistance being selected for. And there's even been some dolutegravir monotherapy, which we don't advise because resistance was selected, but in a subset of people. Uh, And now there's tens of thousands of people, my guess is, in clinical practice that have been treated with dolutegravir. And I think we're still below a handful of case reports. Um, Rafi? of patients who fail first-line therapy with dolutegravir resistance, having had one of them. I mean, we're still less than five from the community. So the amount of data with dolutegravir, along with the in vitro data, is extremely robust uh, in thousands and thousands of patients. Um, This is the amount of data with big tegravir, as far as I know. Two trials with 48 weeks of follow-up, with no resistance selected for yet. People just in clinical practice starting it. Uh, we have the maintenance studies, and you know, they like to point to those also for having not seen resistance, but you know, most of those people do well. So it may turn out that the in vitro data which predicts the resistance, barrier to resistance, is high, that Big will look like dolutegravir, And I don't think it's wrong to assume that it will behave that way, but we really, the amount of data is still pretty limited, so we don't know. And then this is just some of the, one of the markable studies from the Dutch cohort, the Netherlands group, where they just demonstrated the number of people in clinical practice that stopped therapy with dolutegra because of CNS toxicity. I'm not sure we've seen this in clinical trials or in clinical practice, but it's been described in now many clinic cohorts, and there's probably something to it. So whether it changes what we do or not is an open question, but it's something we probably at least need to be aware of and talk to our patients a little bit about. So, now we're going to switch to another patient who's suppressed with a history of virologic failure. So, I I always say that probably the most common thing I do in my clinic nowadays is switch people uh, for any one of a number of reasons, but it seems like that's all we do. Um, So it's always worth talking about some of the issues surrounding switch. So this is a 54-year-old man, well-controlled diabetes and hypertension, normal renal function, long history of HIV. Previously experienced virologic failure with tenofovir FTC efavirenz and had the K103N and the 184V mutation at that time. Subsequently suppressed for several years on boosted darunavir plus TDF FTC. And for the last year on darunivir-cobacistap fixed dose combination FTC-TAF with good tolerance. He's heard about many new single tablet regimens and wants to switch. Not an uncommon request. Uh, hep B surface antibody positive, HLA-B B5701-. 5701 negative. So the question for all of you is, which would you recommend? That he switch to a TAF-FTC rilpivirine-based regimen. He had the K103N, not, um, which it in itself doesn't confer resistance to rilpivirine. Uh, but he did have 184 V. The l vitegravir based regimen, dolutegravir-bacavir-3TC. The new single-tablet dolutegravir Piverine for maintenance therapy. Tell him there are no good single-tablet regimens for him and he should hold out for the new fixed-dose combination with darunavir Kobe, ftc taf Tell him there are no good single-tablets for him, but, you know, dolutegravir and TAF-FTC are two small pills and a good option. Uh, And I actually don't have bictegravir-TAF-FTC. So let's switch that out. Instead of something else, let's have G be bictegravir-TAF-FTC. So let me have you go ahead and vote. So again, it's a patient who has some comorbidities that are well-controlled, history of viral failure with 184V and 103N, who would like a single tablet regimen if possible, but is otherwise doing great. Wow, so Bictegravir, TAF, FTC, that was the most popular. Rafi, let me start
1: with you. What did you vote for? Um, I I went with the uh, dolutegravir regimen. With the M184V, I'm more confident uh, with dolutegravir than I am with Bictegravir. And I know he wants one tablet once a day regimen. But um, I've found that most people, except for the copay issue with to, with two different it's tablets. It's a real issue for some which patients. Which can be yeah. a real, t- it, but if, that, if if it's an issue of, I just would prefer two tablets as opposed to one, I, I would be more confident, and, and that may just be nonsense. Um, but again, with the amount of data that we have about Bictegravir versus Dolutegravir, I'm more comfortable. Yeah, Doug. I went with number seven, the Bictegravir.
4: Wanted to stay away from the back of your base regimen, which would have been the other single tablet I would have gone for in this gentleman.
0: Judy?
2: Yeah. And the other thing I would have checked about were um, any GERD or an acid mm-hmm. or need for uh, for That's those things because that 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 can be a, a problem with it, um, thinking about dauletagervir Um I went with the big tagervir regimen.
0: Great, and Tim.
3: Um, I, I I think I would offer the dauletagervir ribavirine or the big tegravir Regiment or the dolutegravir taf FTC Regiment, I think those would all be fine. I think it's important to note that I would not feel comfortable with the abacavir 3TC dolutegravir because the M184V does confer some resistance to abacavir and that could potentially lead to resistance, although we don't have data. And the same with the L-tegravir Regiment; regimen, you know, you could have resistance develop more easily to that.
0: Yeah, in reality, if you you know if you look at all the switch studies, right, and there have been now so many large, fully-powered switch studies, none of them would exclude this or include this patient. He'd be excluded from every single one of the studies, whether it makes sense that it would work or not. So we're left to sort of extrapolate from the data that exists. I mean, um,
3: the only thing that we do have was the switch Merck study where people had NRTI resistance and were put on Rau, and Nukes. And they did poorly because they developed resistance to raltegravir. So I think that concept we know. That it has so to be. So we have need to at least really cons- we
0: need to know about yeah. what's in the background. The question is, how much do we need to know about it for different types of regimens? Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the data, but really, so the amount of data we have with big with TAF FTC with 184V, absolutely zero, unless there's some in clinical Pratt. We just don't have it yet. Um, in duloxetine real ropivacaine in people with uh, with uh, 103N, I think there's plans to do a study, um, but we don't have the data, so we just don't know. Um, so same scenario, except the patient is now getting into. Oh, I was going to ask before I go on to this, and I'll ask Judy if you'll weigh in. Um, the how much of would you be impacted by to separate from his request the darunivir and cardiovascular concerns in a patient with diabetes and hypertension. As far as um, his, he, he comes in, he wants a single tablet regimen, but I mean, is that something that you'd spend much time talking to him about?
2: You know, I think it, I would look at the lipid profile and I think um, excess risk of cardiovascular disease associated with darunivir I'm not convinced, but I would be worried if the lipid profile had been altered by being on it, then that, that might be a reason to think about
0: switching. Okay, because so there's some data, but you're not convinced that the clinical relevance? Yeah. Okay, so now the person's developed some renal insufficiency with his diabetes and hypertension on, again, it's darunivir cobus TAF-FTC. So, the question is, is RET and clearance now has dropped from about 80 to 50 over some period of time? Which would you recommend? The L-vitegravir based regimen. Again, he still has the underlying resistance. So, the Dolutegravir based regimen um, with the back of your 3TC, Dolutegravir with TAF FTC, a boosted PI with the back of your 3TC, Dolutegraviral piverine, the boosted PI plus an integrase and apologize that it's not a single tablet regimen, or something else. And let's say seven will be, again, Bictegravir, TAF, FTC, since that's been a popular answer. Uh, Let's leave that there for now. So um, the question is, with this progressive renal function, does that really change what people were thinking before this started to unfold? So go ahead and vote. So again, underlying 184V103N, diabetes, hypertension, and progressive renal dysfunction. I know somebody's going to ask. Well, I really need to know more about his renal disease and what does his urine show, and what's his fractional excretion of phosphorus. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So TAF, FTC, Kim Tim.
3: Um, yeah, I, I I think that you. Would want to have the person on a TAF-based regimen. I think you would want to avoid the boosters because I don't think we have enough data about the role of the ritonavir or COBE to increase the, the levels of tenofovir, even with TAF, and what effect that might have. So I think you'd be better off avoiding the, the boosters.
0: So you'd say that even though he's developing progressive disease, and it may be from his comorbid conditions that have nothing to do with his treatment, We want to minimize what we may be contributing to it, and at least right now, let's focus on the fact that the boosters may be contributing along with the. Yes, I mean I I suppose it might raise
3: the possibility of the Dalutegrial pivoting a bit more as a possibility, just to avoid that issue altogether. But I don't think that there's really any data to show to suggest that the TAF would be detrimental.
0: And the one point that you know I always remind people is that the. The TAF FTC only comes with 25 milligrams of TAF, uh, which we know with a booster increases the tenofir levels. Uh, and in people with chronic kidney disease, it boosts tenofir levels further. And we don't really have any data showing the safety of TAF at that dose um, with a booster in people with kidney disease. So it's just one more thing to worry about. It doesn't mean that's what's causing the problem. Yeah. Judy?
2: So I think, I mean, it also was a, a patient who a nuke sparing regimen might be good, right? And you raised the issue about dolutegravir, rilpivirine, and the K103N. I mean, the other thing you might do is dolutegravir with gerunavir or some other two-drug combination.
0: Yeah. So one abandons the tenofir, the other abandons the boosted PI. And since we don't know which one's contributing the most, they're probably all pretty reasonable strategies. Right
3: just to say the K103N shouldn't impact the dolutegraviropivirine efficacy, we just don't have any studies right.
0: about it. Yeah, exactly. In fact, we don't have any studies in darunavir, ritonavir, people who failed any regimens in the past. So one would assume that if you didn't fail, the you don't have resistance. Dolutegavirol-pivirine. Dolutegavirol-pivirine. One would assume that if you don't have resistance in either of the active drugs, it shouldn't matter. But the clinical trials are always very selective to avoid people with any history of failure in the past.
1: So, Oh yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say I, I still went for the dalutagrevir two tablets. You did. I'm, I'm holding out um, okay. even with the single tablet regimen, you know, for a little while till we get more data. Yeah.
0: So just to remind everybody of the amount of data we have for TAF and people with chronic kidney disease, uh, it's approved to creatinine clearance it down to 30 in all formulations, um, based upon the PK data, the fact that the tenofovir levels are still much lower than TDF even in people with normal renal function. And this single-arm open-label study of people who had creatinine clearance of between 30 and 69 who got switched to L-vitegravir, FTC, TAF, and then were followed for a couple of years, and their um, creatinine remained stable. So the limitations of this study is always that, um, one, we don't know what would have happened had they not switched therapy, because there was no control group. These were a relatively stable population of people to begin with. And the other one is, again, the TAF dose in the fixed dose combination with l is only 10 milligrams, uh, not 25. And that certainly does affect the level. So the data is limited. And it's just something to be aware of. And then the abacavir story, and Judy, let me t- pick on you again. Just where are you with abacavir and cardiovascular disease in a patient like this with kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension? And I'm sorry I didn't tell you his lipids.
2: No, that's okay. So, I mean, I think that that has always been a, Concern and on the package insert, I think, to be concerned about that and people at high risk. And at Croy this year, we heard some data about platelet function and people switched to abacavir and evidence that the platelet function went in the direction to be more reactive once they made the switch. Um, So that is kind of increasing evidence for a potential mechanism. There's still a few holes in it. Um, it'd be really nice to see that changing when you started abacavir, not just when you stopped it. But I, I think that we, when you have alternatives, um, that would be the pr- patient that I would look for the alternatives.
0: Because this has traditionally been the default drug for people with kidney disease. But now with TAF and other options, perhaps that don't include tenofovir or abacavir, I think we have other ways to go. And I guess the other, the NA Accord published the, their data in jades in the last month, also suggesting an association. So there's quite a bit of data, but we don't know for sure. Uh, this is the DAD data for darunavir. that Judy wasn't terribly worried about. And if she doesn't worry, I don't worry. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna call all my patients who I told to worry to tell them they don't have to anymore. I mean, there is a modest difference. And then you guys saw, in, uh, you and Rafi in 5257 in the sub-study
2: Well, we saw a reduced risk with atazanavir relative to the um, raltegravir, but that was for carotid IMT, not for clinical events.
0: And then um, this is the dawning study. This is really the one really good data set that we have that um, gives us a hint about the use of dolutegravir with only one active nuke, so a patient with 184V for example. Now, this was for salvage therapy and people failing, so one would assume that if it worked well that you could take people failing with 184V and put them on dolutegravir with one fully active nuke and they had 80% suppression, one would assume that you could maintain suppression uh, as a maintenance strategy, but we don't have the data. And we, don't, again, don't have that data with Bictegravir yet. And this is the S.W.O.R.D. study. The only reason I pointed out, because I think everybody is aware of it, is, again, it was a very carefully selected population of people with no history of failure. And that's what the package insert says as well. Uh, doesn't mean that it wouldn't work in people who have no resistance to the active drugs, but we just don't have the data. So the last patient, and we got about five minutes for this, and then we will have some time for questions, so if you've got questions, start writing them down. or start thinking about what they are, so that you can ask the panel. Uh, this is our 43-year-old man with a long history of HIV who's been suppressed on tenofovir FTC rilpivirine for two years, good tolerance, recently had some poor adherence, missed doses, and documented viral rebound of greater than 1,000. His genotype showed the E138K, the signature mutation for rilpivirine, and the 184I, which is the 3TC FTC mutation that emerges in people failing this regimen. He's now adherent and prepared to adhere to whichever regimen you recommend, but again would prefer to stay on a single-tablet regimen if possible. He has no comorbidities, and he's HLAB5701 negative. So which of the following would you recommend? A boosted PI with TAF FTC, um, soon-to-be single-tablet regimen, a boosted PI with integrase, plus or minus some nukes. Uh, L-vitegravir-based regimen, dolutegravir-TAF-FTC, obviously not a single-tablet regimen. Uh, Dolutegravir-bacavir-3TC, I guess number six is going to be bictegravir-TAF-FTC. It has to be. Um, and again, remember, this is a person who has this underlying resistance, virologic failure. Uh, would like a single-tablet regimen, but, you know, you do what you have to do. So go ahead and vote. Vic Tireir Tev- Tregivir- TAF FTC um, then 20% Dalia well really 45% some Dalu based regimen. so it's sort of a split between Vic Tegravir and Dalia um, Doug, you want to go first tell us what you voted for?
4: So I was in the something else category again Well um, I think all of the reasons that have been stated
0: previously. Okay. Rafe.
1: Um, I'm sort of a one-trick pony. I'm a (laughs) dolutegravir, taf FTC kind of guy for really the dawning reason in this particular case it fits that sort of study profile better and I just don't know about big tegravir.
0: So he pushes back a little and he says, you know, um, 16% of a pretty sophisticated, experienced audience said I could get that dolutegravir benefit you're talking about and do it with the single tablet regimen which is what I really want. Can I have that?
1: <laughs> so uh, then it, it's, it was a conversation about what you believe is true or not about abacavir and cardiovascular risk and you know whether that single tabletness is really that critical to his adherence because I do think we have to pay attention to that because there was this episode of non-adherence that led to the non-nuke resistance. So if that's going to be the issue that makes the difference. I think then a conversation about knowns and unknowns of a back of your risk are appropriate. But I, I tend to shy away from a back of ear.
2: Yeah, the Dawning study that you just talked about didn't have a back of with alitretinib in it. Like two percent. Yeah. So yeah. I think that to me that the experience we have and being confident that people with 184V can do okay comes from that. But you know, the single-tablet boosted PI, when it does come out, and there's just a lot of people who really tolerate PI, it's just fine. And I, I think we should keep in mind that, that that would also be a good option here.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tim? Um, I, I think one thing to, to just mention is that a number of years ago, or a few years ago, we might have thought we need to have three fully active agents, so we might have picked a single-tablet regimen and added a protease or something much more complicated, but I think there's growing data uh, of the efficacy of the two nukes and dolutegravir or two nukes in a PI and people that have an M184V or M184I, I assume, mutation. So I, I don't feel like we need to add anything beyond that. Um, and so I think the single-tablet regimen or the two, it's the, really the same discussion that we had before. But I agree, I would not use a bacavir or um, definitely not the elvategravir based regimens.
0: Well, great. So, that's I'm just going to run through a little bit of the data that's already been discussed. This is one of the three second line studies that looked at people failing non nuke and a nuke based regimen. Um, and this was the earnest study that had the group with the boosted PI, Raltegravir, the boosted PI with mostly two nukes that were recycled, they didn't have have access to resistance data in most of these trials, or a group that received the boosted PI raltegravir and then switched to lopinavir monotherapy. And the important thing to know is that the lopinavir monotherapy did the worst. So that's not an option. Um, But the lopinavir-ritonavir with uh, integrase, so two fully active drugs, did as well as lopinavir-ritonavir with recycled nuke. So this is a really important point related to some of the questions. that you've been asked during the course of this symposium, um, that uh, boosted PIs with a nuke, or recycled nukes, work very well with high rates of viral suppression in the mid-70s. The boosted PI monotherapy alone is really not an option, even if you get them virologically suppressed first. And there are these other studies that showed almost exactly the same thing, although they didn't have the boosted monotherapy uh, monotherapy with the boosted PI. The other analysis from Ernest that was interesting was looking at the relationship retrospectively between the number of active nukes in virologic response. So this group here in the bar on the far left had no active nukes based on resistance data. And you can see their virologic response was essentially the same with the boosted PI as if they had one or two to three active nukes. And we see this all the time, and most people think that this This, at least the numerical advantage of having more resistance relates to adherence. People would hear more, select for more resistance, but it makes a strong case that the boosted PI with even recycled nukes, without active nukes, appears to be a very effective strategy. And I think this has really influenced the guidelines for first-line failure. And probably you could extrapolate it to anybody who's failing who still has a fully active boosted PI. And then the Dawning study, which came out last summer um, after an interim analysis resulted in it being stopped, tried to look at whether all paths after failure need to go through a boosted PI. It was the first study to do this, and it compared head-to-head lopinavir-rotonavir with two nukes versus dolutegravir with two nukes. And the important difference between this study and the other three was they had real-time access to resistance data. And in order to be eligible for the study, you had to be able to have in your regimen at least one fully active nuke. And what they reported last summer was that the overwhelming majority of people enrolled in the study had one fully active nuke, not two. So basically, they received one fully active nuke um, with Dalyutegravir or with the boosted PI. And the reason the study was stopped early was because a highly significant advantage for the dolutegravir with one active nuke versus the boosted PI. And it wasn't because the boosted PI. With one active nuke didn't do well because this is the same 70-ish percent that we saw in the other trials. It was that the dolutegravir-based arm did particularly well. And it demonstrated us both non-inferiority and superiority. And that's why the study was stopped. So we now have evidence that a dolutegravir-based regimen, as long as it includes at least one fully active nuke, um, is an option that actually was better than at least one boosted PI. And people will argue, well, that's lopinavir-ritonavir, there's more toxicity, maybe the results would have been different with darunavir, and that's true. And I can't say that that's not true, but what you can say is that dolutegravir in this particular setting worked really well. What do we not know? Well, we don't know if it were less than one fully active nuke, um, And we don't know about abacavir because almost none of these people actually had that as part of the regimen. And at least there's a biologic reason to be worried about it, as I think Tim brought up, or somebody brought up, that the 184V sensitizes to tenofir and AZT, which most of these people received, and it increases the amount of resistance um, to abacavir. So there's a biologic reason why it might be a concern, and we simply don't have the data yet. There was a presentation at CROI that also suggested that with dolutegravir, nukes may matter, and that there was a suggestion that what nukes were chosen, although the amount of data presented made it difficult to completely interpret, but the amount, what nukes were used, did appear to make a difference, even though everyone had at least one fully active nuke. So I think more to follow, but Dalyutagravir with uh, one fully active nuke and another seems to be very effective. And these are just sort of a summary of what the current guidelines suggest for virologic failure. I won't go through this in detail, but a real big focus on the fact that if boosted PI is fully active, it doesn't need to be with two other fully active drugs. And if dolutegravir is active, um, if you have one fully active NUKE you can use with it, um, it's likely to be successful. And that's true in first line failure, second line failure, and and all other types of failure. So it really depends on what the drugs are that are active that go into the regimen as to what you need to use. So with that, I want to stop. Thank the panelists for their participation. Thank all of you for your attention. And we have, I think, about 10 minutes for questions. Five minutes, okay.
2: You have a bunch on the cards.
0: I don't know if there's cards. Okay, great. Sure. Thanks. So this was a a question, the patient's spiremic, poor adherence, it's like the patient I described, um, comes back to clinic off therapy as major depression, restart therapy immediately, or get depression treated first. And let me complicate it a little by saying that the person has less than 200 T cells, because that probably does impact any sense of urgency one has, because obviously we want to get the person's mental health under control. Any thoughts? Doug, do you want to? Well, uh, apparently,
4: everyone's looking at me for depression. (laughs) Uh, I'm not depressed, but it's okay. So uh, we do, there's a lot of data that depression impacts adherence. So I would, uh, understanding the urgency of a CD4 count as mentioned, I do think you need to start something relative to the depression because you can prescribe antiretroviral therapy, but if the person doesn't take it, then it's going to be ineffective. So from my perspective, you need to address that depression uh, before you can move forward effectively,
0: any anyone disagree? Yeah, I think it really depends on how urgent you need to start them on therapy and how bad their depression is, and how much you think yeah. that's going to impact their ability to adhere. Okay. So we presumably still have to use. To clinical you gave me, me a nice
4: bell curve. I just yeah,
0: picked yeah.
3: Right. But presumably, to treat the depression, they would also have to take a pill a day. So.
4: Well, <laughs> I mean, you well, so yes and no, right? I mean, they still do placebo-controlled. RCTs for depression, because 40% of people given a placebo get better uh, who are diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And why is that? Well, placebos can work, not in HIV, but in depression. Uh, But also, I think one of the key factors is therapy. So sometimes, and again, it all depends on why is the person depressed. Is it situational? Someone died, they got dumped by their partner. Is it something that's temporary that's going to get better? Or is some... Do they have an organic problem, like, you know, MDD, and they need a medication? So, but you're right, I think a lot of, we've talked about adherence in a lot of these things. One of the key factors is adherence support, right? And so some of the, it it may be more than just, here's a pill, go home and take it, come back to me later. But it may be, you know, in our system, we'll have like a visiting nurse, or we'll have somebody to help support the person. So I think it's a valid point. Whatever the patient needs, they're gonna need support.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, what if it turns out that uncontrolled HIV contributes to depression through some biologic mechanism? I mean, then we're going to say you should treat the HIV and and depression concurrently. I think there's a lot we don't know about this area.
0: And how our drugs contribute to all of this, right? I mean, we know about efavirenz, we're worried about dolutegravir, there's some hints about ropivirine, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a very uh, detailed and sophisticated question someone had about the Donning study and the Croy presentation. I'd be happy to talk about it afterwards, but I think it it would use up what little time we have left. But it's a great question. Um, I have a serodiscordant heterosexual couple who want to conceive. His viral load is less than 20. Um, Would you give her PrEP until pregnancy?
1: Rafi? Um, so this is a complicated question. I think the uh, Dr. Hoffman, who's sitting in the back row here, um, actually did a, a very nice modeling study trying to ask what the best answer is to this exact question. I think overall you could say undetectable viral load risk of transmitting essentially zero. Um, so probably not. But um, Dr. Hoffman's modeling study looked at if there were other circumstances Um, where PrEP might still be beneficial, and what she found, and I'm gonna get this wrong, so Risa's gonna have to get up and speak, um, is that when intercourse was happening throughout the entire ovulatory cycle, the risk of transmission, even in these cases assuming transient blips and or non-adherence in the positive partner, um, uh, still warranted that person, uh, the negative partner, being on PrEP, but when um, intercourse was timed specifically during the period of ovulation. Um, there was no additional benefit, and prep probably was not indicated. This is probably Coles to Newcastle, and probably someone who is on treatment and 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 undetectable does as as we've discussed already is not infectious to their partner. But considering the emotional um, context of it, some that particular context where. Um, Uh, and of course is happening throughout the ovulatory cycle, you could at least make an argument that there might be some benefit.
0: And again, this probably isn't related to this specific question, but there was a lot of um, attention given to a presentation at CROI and a paper published simultaneously in JID showing the increased risk of transmission uh, during pregnancy and postpartum, so.
3: Yeah, and I think that if the woman were to become Uh, HIV-infected during pregnancy, that's almost a guaranteed transmission to the, to the infant, just because of the intense viremia. So I think that that just, and it's such, it's a time-limited event by nature, so I, I would favor, uh, being more aggressive about PrEP in that situation.
1: We do have a little bit of limited data about the safety, um, of TDF-FTC in pregnancy and to the newborn infant, and including through the breastfeeding period. So, um, one more question, real quick one, I think.
0: Patient, because we see this, patient adherent on Prescobix descovi, sorry about that, I'm just reading the cards for the, <laughs> the CME people. Darunavir, Cobasistat, TAF, FTC, uh, viral load at about 100, never undetectable, genotype pan sensitive, would, uh, would Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, and Darunavir, Cobasistat be an option?
3: So for, for someone with persistent low-level viremia? Yeah, so
0: basically switching them from a boosted PI in nukes to something else, whether it's an integrase inhibitor, and boosted PI, or anything else, whether that's the right strategy or do we just let it ride and monitor?
3: I mean, I think I would focus on uh, really understanding if they're having challenges with adherence to that regimen, and if that's the case, then I would make a change or make a change just based on the other reasons we change people off of protease inhibitors and then see what happens. But I don't think there's really any data to, to say that switching ART around in that situation is going to lead to better viral suppression.
0: Yeah, most of the data suggests that it probably doesn't. Obviously, everybody's different, um, but that's what the guidelines actually have for several years now weighed in on this issue because it's common enough. And it does seem to happen more with boosted PIs than other regimens. Um, And that although there's a lot of mixed data as to what the clinical relevance is, most of the data suggests these people aren't progressing and most aren't developing resistance and that they probably can be followed. But making sure they're adhering, making sure there are no important drug-drug and drug-food interactions. Okay, I do think we're out of time. Thank you all very much.